Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode, actually a bonus episode, bonus of, episode. of Divided Films, the podcast where we talk about movies that audiences and critics do not agree on. So, you know, I th- we've kind of wrapped up our first season. I've enjoyed it. This yeah. has been a great, th- like for our first time doing a podcast. We are noobs to the podcast game. Uh, but I feel like we're kind of getting the hang of it. As we uh, well, we'd like to thank you all for supporting us, and that's why we we decided, we love doing this so much, we decided to do this bonus episode yeah, in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And, I don't know, it's kind of like a drug. You just record yourself talking, and you want to keep recording more. So <laughs> we have decided to maybe change up the format a little bit for this sort of, like, epilogue episode or bonus episode. So in the past... We've talked about movies that audiences and critics don't agree on, and then at the end of those episodes, we decide to pick a side. You know, do we agree with the audiences, or do we agree with the critics? Well, this time, we're going to talk about movies that we disagree with both audiences and critics. So these are movies where the audiences and critics are aligned, but we're not. We're kind of going against the grain, so... That's what makes this bonus episode a special episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On a very special episode of <laughs> Divided Films. Uh, it gets very serious. So, uh, the way it works is uh, Keith and I have both brought to the table a movie that either audiences and critics both like that one of us hates, or the other way around, a movie that both audiences and critics dislike. Am I getting that right? That's a tongue twister. It's a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> you kind of get the idea. Whether both audiences and critics like it and one of us dislikes it or the other way around. So we're going to talk about four We're movies. going against the grain here. Exactly. We're the ones divided. So what we're going to do is uh, for each movie brought to the table, Keith has brought two movies to the table. I'm bringing two movies to the table. We're going to try to convince each other to come to our side. So the movies I'm against... Keith might be in the majority, but I might try to sway him, and he's going to do the same for me. Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to have 10 minutes to make these arguments, and at the end of 10 minutes, we'll find out if we're successful in convincing that other person to come to the other side. So, uh, you know, let's have a clean fight here. All right. (laughs) Ding, ding. Exactly. So the first movie we're going to talk about is the movie that Keith, dislikes, but both audiences and critics like. They really like this, and I'm disappointed. We're gonna do this, we gotta do it now! Ready to swim? I'm ready. Punch it. Tell me this is gonna work. I believe in you. Come on, it's gonna be fun. Star Trek Into Darkness. Released in 2013, directed by J.J. Abrams. Abrams. Of course, starring uh, the returning cast from the 2009 Star Trek movie, Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto and so forth. So, real quick, before we start the timer, this movie has an 84% approval from critics and 89% approval from audiences, and the critics' consensus is, on Rotten Tomatoes, visually spectacular and suitably action-packed, Star Trek Into Darkness is a rock-solid installment in the venerable sci-fi franchise, even if it's not as fresh as its predecessor. So, Keith, I will start the timer, and you can make your arguments. And go! All right. (laughs) I am... 
I'm not speaking as like a Star Trek fan. Like I, I do like Star Trek. I've, I'm, I've seen episodes from both the original and the Next Generation. I went in with low expectations to see the 2009 Star Trek that J.J. Abrams directed. I actually, I really enjoyed it. I did too. A lot of people did. And I also, and I know Star Trek fans did not enjoy it. They thought it was a distortion of uh, Gene Roddenberry's uh, vision. But they li- they happened to like the third one, which I thought was fine. But we're talking about the second one. Yes. Where... I feel like this movie thinks I'm dumb. Or is treating me like I'm dumb. Oh, and wow. the title, I hate this movie. Star the, Trek no, Into Darkness. No, no, no. It, you know what? Get it? it? Into it, Darkness? Well, the Star Trek... Oh, most of the movies, Star Trek, colon, The Return. I would have... Right. If this movie had a colon in it, it would have... <laughs> I would have given it like maybe a bump up in my book. Okay. Uh, because Star Trek in the Darkness is so stupid of a title. By the but way, it do makes they, sense with the colon. Do they go into darkness though? Uh, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch wears a bunch of black. Yeah, yeah. Like, what is the darkness that they're going into? But uh, this movie and movies around this time. Uh, okay, let's get into Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay, yeah. He's a he. He's a fantastic actor, fantastic villain. I actually don't mind. That, the, every, if you love the cast from the from the 2009, the cast is all together. I think the cast definitely works, and I think everyone knew Benedict Cumberbatch was going to be Khan. Maybe that's a marketing thing where they revealed the twist. He didn't need like, to be Khan, though. I feel like the movie was like treating it like a twist that, oh, it's Khan, because he had a different name for the first half of the movie. But we all knew he was Khan, right, going into it? Did well, we all know that? Do you want your villain to be named John Harrison? In the year is like 20, what a memorable name. The year is twenty one forty nine. You want you want your villain to be named John Harrison. That, that now, I, I of all the you know uh, Wrath of Khan. I remember seeing that uh, when I first started getting into kind of Star Trek. Yeah. And it what's great about Wrath of Khan is it kind of sells you. It's kind of like a Shakespearean like you know back and forth t- chess mm-hmm. game. It's a very it's not a big action-packed movie. It's well, a, uh, it's only like two settings. That... There's a lot of really good lines, and there's like a very famous monologue from the original actor who plays Khan, right? I mean, he kind of... I feel like that's... It's not like a... Sorry, I feel like I speak a little fast. Yeah. But isn't that actor a very seasoned actor, the he original is. Khan? I, he was also in the... He was also in the... He popped up as not... Like, he wasn't dressed in his garb. He popped yeah. up in an episode in the first... In, like, one of the episodes. Gotcha. And then he went away and he became... It mm-hmm. kind of follows the plot of this one. Like, he, has, he wants to get back to his... He's a genetically engineered right. superhuman. But I would say the plot of this is... Uh, his his plot kind of makes sense. Like he, Right. I get his motivation. And there's a couple twists in this movie where you also have that high-ranking Starfleet commander whatever his position was who betrays them who just makes a bigger like how do you defeat a big how do you th- defeat the starship make a bigger one it's basically the enterprise times 10 uh which fucks up sam I, I, it just got into so dumb action but that's the thing khan is out for blood so he not only does he destroy starfleet he probably kills several thousand people when he crashes into san francisco so he is like out for blood and i think they're trying to emphasize Khan is bad. He is a bad guy, and he does really bad things. So they had to, up to that point, 
he hadn't really done anything that was a super standout. You kind of feel bad for him, like he wants to get back to his people. And he kind of kills the what I would argue is the real main villain, which is that Robocop. Yeah, Robocop. Yeah, right. He's the real bad guy. So they kind of had to have him do this like crazy terrorist act as the thing to be like, oh, he is bad. Because they even had that scene with the original Spock where he's like, he's he's the most dangerous adversary we've ever had. Okay, since I only have that scene alone, I love the way Leonard Nimoy was used in the first one. I think it was just a nice passing of the torch without overdoing it. It worked with the plot, and it kind of got Chris Pine's Kirk to where he needs to be as a captain. And and even at the end of that movie, he's like, you know, you can only use me once. I leave me alone. Yeah, but they're getting back now. Do not like it'll mess up with the time thing. And in just like a quick scene, this had to be like a. I bet this was like a reshoot of like we don't know how to do this. Like how do we do? How do we know we have to defeat Khan? Exactly. And then they they call up their like lifeline. And <laughs> phone a friend. They call up their phone a friend. And Leonard Nimoy should have been, uh, Spock should have been like, leave me alone. Or it's more like, it's more like phone yourself. Uh, okay, well, how about this? And though? here's how you defeat Khan. He's the worst. He's like, you just right. tickle him under the arm and he's good. Now, this is tough because I am not as familiar with a lot of the original Star Trek stuff, a lot of the franchises from years past. So, you know, the audience reaction has to be a mix of fans who really know their stuff, what they think, and then people who don't know as much, so maybe they're judging it at a lower bar, like they don't know what to expect, and Star Trek fans have a higher standard. And it seemed to kind of cater more towards the Star Trek fan base, kind of reversing the story of the original Wrath of Khan, like, oh, this is what you would have done, when they reversed the roles of Spock and... um, Uh, Kirk. And Kirk. Uh, Okay, (laughs) I hope I don't get chewed out for forgetting Captain Kirk's name. But, you know what I mean, they're trying to be a little clever, like, oh, they switched roles this time, because remember, it's an alternate universe, so, oh, I did what you would have done, because you did do it in another timeline. To speak to both of the, like, trying to appease the fan, like, regular people and the Star Trek people, to the Star Trek people, it's just like, I don't know, it's a cashing in on this, on this movie, like, they do the con, they do the the needs of the many make your own thing was it even warranted did he need to be con did that con shouting that was definitely something for the old fans for an unemotional person yeah Kirk, Spock is date I hated the dating like they turned Aurora into like this oh they, like this her, girlfriend that that was her uh, plot this whole yeah she was just upset at her boyfriend really like the interrupting a mission like excuse me captain we need to hash out this like you don't talk, do this during I'm like well, let me just say, I do like this movie, and for your chance to maybe address in these last couple minutes the things that maybe I like to try to knock that down, I do think it's exciting, and there's good action, and it looks really great. You get that classic J.J. Abrams lens flare. I don't know if you're a fan of that. And in terms of the overall tone of the movie, I feel like this movie and this whole franchise, they're crowd pleasers. They don't do anything that's too challenging or too daring like they kind of kill off kirk at the end but then they bring him back and with super blood with super blood which like what is super super, blood what is super blood anyway so it's crowd pleasing the humor is light the action is intense just enough the same writers of that also wrote the amazing spider-man 
So they, they, they like using super blood as a plot device. Whatever that is, super blood. No name, by the way, just super blood. <laughs> so what do you think of the tone? Do you not like the tone either? I know I, you said you feel like this movie is kind of patronizing you in a way. I Okay, J.J. Abrams is a great act. Like, I do agree that it is visually spectacular and suitably action-packed. I just feel like it's... the. JJ, okay, this movie came out in 2013. Force Awakens came out in 2015. I'm, I remember the first time watching this movie going like, wow, this reminds me a lot of Star Wars. And oh. then I, and this is before he was announced that he was going to be the director. And then he was like, and right, he was quickly, JJ Abrams going to be the director of Force Awakens. And I'm like, I bet this was a demo reel for Star Wars. Mm. Yeah, I bet he knew what he had oh, to do. Oh, interesting. Like, there are some shots, like when uh, Simon Pegg is doing, like, his own thing. There are some shots, I think they're on Pluto or Neptune or something like that. Mm. And I'm like, this is very Star Wars-esque. The music even feels that way. Oh, interesting. And I feel like everyone just got like, you know what, we're going to serve this crowd. Mm. Just We're just going to bring out the classics. We're not going to, like, we have some cool moments, like I thought when they were shooting from ship to ship. And they have to make that, like... Yeah, that was a cool scene. Like, there's some good set pieces. There's some... J.J. Abrams knows set pieces. But the story is so... I think when you pull back mm-hmm. the those aspects, it's dumb and it's so... It's... It's, it's a story... I it assumes like, you're going to like it because it thinks you're stupid. I, You know, I agree. I think there's some story aspects that I've seen before. Like, why did he blow up that one building? Because he knew we'd all gather in this room. Hasn't that happened in, like, a bunch of other action movies where it's like... Oh, what a weird move that he would do this one thing because he knew it would lead to this other thing. I feel like I've seen that the in at least one, a few other movies. Just the last point, the one shot that uh, that I think sums up this movie as uh, you'll like this stupid. Oh, is, I'm sorry, Keith. We're out of no, time. No. But one last argument. The bell has rung, but just one last argument. The one, okay, the one shot that I think sums up this whole movie as you'll clap at anything stupid is, I think Alice Eve is such an attractive woman, and she's a good actress. Oh, the daughter of the guy? The daughter of Robocop. Robocop. <laughs> uh, I think she's so beautiful, but I felt like uh, when she was talking with Kirk, and she's like, can you turn around? Mm-hmm. And they do the, they it like it's just like, they do the whole full body shot of her just standing, she's like, hello, can you turn around? And I'm just like, that's oh. a shot. The audience goes, woo! Like, oh. I know what I came here for. I'm just like, I, I she's beautiful, but I'm just like, this. I'm being completely parented to with the quotes, with the Star Trek, with the con, with I think the that, everything. that was a, a shot that was just kind of pointless. And Bill Hader's in this movie. Did Who is he? He, I'm, uh, this is just a fun fact. I'm watching this movie, I'm listening to this movie, and he is the voice of the giant ship. A, a RoboCop ship, like excuse me, the USS Vengeance. If I again, and I'm, I'm listening to what? this. Oh, I'm to listening to this going like, wait a minute, I know this voice. Why get Bill Hader to do that? Well, he wasn't he also BB-8 too? I guess they're friends. I have no idea about that. <laughs> well, just to connect, I guess Star Trek into Star but Wars. But that's how I feel. This movie should not be at eighty. This movie should okay. at least be fifty-four percent. That's your your percentage is going to be fifty-four percent. That's interesting. So I think. You know, you make some interesting arguments. Right, the story maybe doesn't stand out as well, but it is covered up with really great effects and action. It's to me like a seventy. I think it's. I don't regret seeing it. I wasn't personally feel like I was talked down to. 
and it's fine. And being someone who's not that familiar with the other Star Trek franchises, the bar is kind of lower for me. So I think you maybe... just lowered. I'm I, at least I lowered your score. You did. You knocked me down from the <laughs> 84. That's the critics, and the 89. That's the audiences. And I think what you really got me thinking this movie over was the fact that the plot is kind of a recycled plot. I'll give you that. But, um, you know, I think that I just have fun watching this movie, and maybe I don't really expect more than I should from this movie. So my bar is lower, mm. uh, admittedly, but I'm at the 70%. So you didn't totally sway me, but you did knock me down a little bit. So um, minor success there. Minor success. <laughs> <laughs> so let's actually move into the movie. I know we went over in order, but I, yes. I might switch it up a little bit. Switch it up. So uh, let's move on. Move on. Move on. Move on to the movie that I dislike, that audiences and critics like. From the director of Kill Bill and Django Unchained comes seven strangers and one. Good way to get yourself dead. They got a secret. One of y'all ain't who they say they is. But they didn't count. Do you know who he is? On him. Start to see pictures, ain't you? He'll kill everybody in here. Shoot them, stab them, burn them. I never bring him in alive. Never. Never, ever. The Hateful Eight, rated R, December 31st. Get him. Get him, audiences. All right, well, like, a little thing. <laughs> Do we have the, the, the fun fact sheet here about uh, it, the Hateful Eight? It, I didn't make a big, huge one. It just... Oh, here it is down oh. here. Okay. So, right before I start the timer, Hateful Eight... 2015 release, directed by Tarantino, his eighth movie, and the percentages here at Rotten Tomatoes, 74% approval from critics, 76% approval from audiences, and the consensus, The Hateful Eight offers another well-aimed round from Quentin Tarantino's signature blend of action, humor, and over-the-top violence, and all while demonstrating an even stronger grip on his filmmaking craft. Okay, so that is... The consensus, and I will now start the 10 minutes. So, yes, this movie offers another blend of Tarantino violence, action, humor, but it's been done before. Tarantino does not make that many movies, and I was very disappointed that, one, he made another Western, and two, you're seeing all the familiar tropes. There's also a lot, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of just sequences that add up to someone being killed. It's just dialogue, 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 someone shot and killed, repeat, repeat, so you will down the cast. I just found that there was not much to it other than that. It was way too long for me. Actually, I've seen it only once before, and trying to watch it now, I couldn't even get through the whole thing. It's three hours long, and it's just a bunch of guys sitting in a cabin shooting each other. I'm also a little disturbed by how they treat the Jennifer Jason Lee character, because they are, like, abusing her the whole movie. Like, ten minutes in, less than ten minutes in, Kurt Russell just elbows her in the nose, and am I supposed to enjoy that? I find that a little disturbing. There's also, again, I know this is, like, the Civil War era, like, post-Civil War, but you also get, we get a lot of Tarantino movies, which is a lot of N-words thrown around. And I just feel like this is a movie where it looks really nice, especially leading up to the cabin, but there's nothing about this that I haven't seen him do before. And for an auteur director, 
like any other auteur director, it's very disappointing to see them recycle material. And I think he really wants to do this on a personal level, but it got to the point of self-indulgence. That is my argument. And how do you feel about all that, Keith? Well, what would the score be? Uh, just so I can uh, gauge... My score for this would be a 45. Oh, oh, wow. Good performances, but it's all over the top. Like, everything about this is so over the top. I And, you know, you get, again, the same cast you always see. Samuel Jackson. You bring back Kurt Russell, who you worked with before. Uh, Michael Madsen. Tim Roth. And a lot of the... First time working with Walton Goggins, who I thought, like, he has to be the standout. Oh, he he was good. There are good performances, but the dialogue is all so heightened that I find it tedious. Like, all these pleasantries and all these kind of stylized dialogue. I was like, all right already. Like, get on with it. I got very impatient with this movie. Now, I'll agree with you that, like, 20 minutes could have been cut from this, even, like, a 40-minute... Like, I... And I know that they made like a mini series. They they made it longer. They made four ep- four hour long episodes on Netflix. Oh. Uh, now I'm kind of a little bit shocked because he is uh, the two main influences for this movie mm-hmm. are Reservoir Dogs, his previous work. I found this and the thing. I definitely you, got a lot of things. You in this. love the thing. I we love, love the thing. I love the thing. And yes, again, Kurt Russell. You're in an isolated environment, winter time. You don't know who to trust. Paranoia. Same music, music that was cut from the thing. I did recognize that, and the composer is the same. Uh, so I did like the music, even though I was annoyed that they stole some of it from the thing. That was it was just unused, unused but it, it's it's definitely thingish. The same themes though. It's the same theme. Oh, heavily. Yeah. So, but actually, kind of. Yeah, is that why it's it, not original? Is that is that why like oh you know I've seen these two movies before I don't need to see the the child of this movie. Right. I appreciate that Tarantino. In, as uh, is doing a respectful nod to the thing and kind of maybe going back to his roots a little bit with Reservoir Dogs. But that movie had so much more realism and grit. This is so stylized in a way that I'm totally detached from it. He's done westerns before. He did Django Unchained, which is, I think, a way more superior movie that had a story. There's no real story with this. There's a plot twist at the end that you find out some of the characters' real motivations. But for the most part, it's just a bunch of guys sitting around talking, and once in a while they kill one another. You're not the first person to uh, that I've read, or at least told me that, like, ah, you know, hatefully it wasn't my favorite, and I can understand that. It is. It's basically Tarantino having a fun time writing, and just sure. like, hey, I'm a like his his dialogue pops. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I just kind of like I like westerns. I like this kind of like a different take on westerns. I do like I do like this movie. Okay. I do like this movie. I don't think you're gonna lower my score because when I watched it again, you do pick up on things that that maybe Channing Tatum was miscast. He's trying. I do like I like. It was so random. It's though. so it's so random at the end to have him just pop out of the floor. Um. Oh, by the way, and this is I don't know. I'm a stickler for certain things. This movie is called The Hateful Eight. I count nine characters. Plus ten, or one more to get you ten if you count Chang Tatum. Who who doesn't count as one of the hateful are you ta- eight? Are you counting the the driver? I guess the driver OB doesn't count as one. Yeah, of the I never counted. He... But does Bob the Mexican count as one of the hateful? Yeah, Bob is one of the. All right, fine. I just again, it's just a stickler. I was confused a little bit. I'm like hateful eight. There's more than eight characters in this movie. So who's I don't know. Maybe that's a dumb kind of thing, but to me. 
this movie is very much concept, and when little things like that don't add up to this high concept, uh, it kind of sours it for me. Now, the the abuse by like I'm not I'm gonna I'm gonna try to find the right words here. It's for unpleasant. Jennifer it's unpleasant. They but, hang her at the end like it's this victorious moment, and it was to me very off-putting. Like, why am I watching this? I wish I well, wasn't you, watching you it at that point. It, it's hard to find. Like, the character you like is uh, Sam Jackson, but right. he's also a bastard. Like, all of them are They're on all the sliding scale. Like, even uh, Kurt Russell, who's just like the bounty hunters are the good guys that capture the bad guys, but he is you know hitting. They're he's all on a, a sliding scale. Yeah, of he's like abusing this woman, and. Yes, Samuel Jackson, you align with him just because, you know, he's He's black. the smartest guy in the room. He's the smartest guy in the room, but also, like, you sympathize because he's a black guy who's surrounded by a bunch of racists. So, of course, you, like, sympathize with him. Would you have, like, let's say, like, hey, JJ, I'm bringing you, I'm bringing you to see a play. And the, you saw, like, would you have joined, uh, enjoyed this if it was, like, a play? You know, perhaps... This could be better as a play. I mean, I can imagine a stage version of this. I, oh, yes. Like, even more so than, like, I always thought Reservoir Dogs would make a good play if done yeah. right. But this one, even more so. I, like, uh, Tarantino writes good dialogue. And he, I, I get I, I get all the criticisms. It's not his best work. No. Like, we, we binge, like, Kill Bill and Glorious, Django. Exactly. I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think this was... Uh, the, this is kind of just like I wanted to make this movie. I wanted just to do like the ten little Indians, the Agatha, Agatha Christie idea of ten little Indians getting whittled down to one who murder mystery, who done it type. And yeah, the who done it thing. But I don't know. I feel like I wanted so much more from Tarantino that I was not getting from this. And three hours long. When there's not much going on, I, I don't mind a three-hour film. In fact, I oh, three I, I, I would think I, I consider Kill Bill to be one movie. Yeah. And I enjoyed that from start to finish. But there's so much more going on in that movie. I think I've I still have two minutes left. But either, either you're along for the ride or you're not. I would say like and you kind of like the the two there's five acts in this film. Oh, that's and the two first acts are before Winnie's, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Minnie's? Minnie's, yeah. yeah. Minnie, Winnie. So, that's another thing. This is, I don't know, the third or fourth Tarantino film where it's the same title card of Chapter 1, this thing. Yeah. And, you know, Chapter 2. Like, we've seen that also before, too. I just, I just a little disappointed. He, in his 90s catalog, seemed to really be more daring and challenging the status quo of movies and this movie is emblematic of just him recreating movies oh there's definitely two stages to tarantino's yes. career and that's not a fault that's just like i enjoy a lot yeah. of his 2000s and 2010 catalog i enjoy uh i love inglorious bastards i think that might be his best work although not my personal might be favorite his masterpiece. yeah exactly he always kind of sticks in a line that is like his own voice or, you know, Django's great. Uh, I, I even really get a kick out of Death Proof, even though that's such, like, a smaller-scale movie. I'll agree with you. The one point that you didn't break up, and I might add to your... Uh, oh, please do. I don't like it when Tarantino, in his latter half, or even, like, in Pulp Fiction, him acting or trying to, like... Oh, yeah. I... It's like, 
He's not even in Hateful Eight, except when he's narrating. Oh, that's right. Eight, I w- he should not have had that. But thing. he narrated but for someone like, poisoned the watering hole. Like some, he should have either. He cut narrated it. one scene. Get Harvey Keitel to do it. Oh right. Like right. I don't think I don't. Samuel want... Jackson, who's the main character. Samuel Jackson was the narrator in Glorious Bastards. Why not get Harvey Keitel to be like? I just don't like. He did it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, oh, and yeah. that was just like in a quick cut. We were here to hear. I I get that. I just. Quint, I love you, but you're a better director than you are an actor. <laughs> All right. Well, my time is up. So, like I said, my score is 45. What is what is your score for this movie? It's 74. percent You didn't lower it, but I get the criticisms. I personally do like this movie from a writing and just the the movies that it's doing. Just, it seems more experimental I give than it an product. 80. I even give it higher. Oh man, you're killing me, Keith. I give it an 80. All right. Well, you know, I did my best and. You know, sometimes we just don't see eye to eye. I think you might win on the next one, though. Okay, okay, that's fair. So we're going to jump back, though, to one of your picks. And so now we're switching it up. The first two movies we talked about were movies audiences and critics liked that we didn't like. Now it's time for movies that we liked that audiences and critics didn't like. It's a film where a girl appears to be murdered. She had no name. I need information. I thought you might be able to help. Until he uncovered the truth. The film is real. Now. I'm trying to understand. How far will he go? You dance with the devil. The devil don't change. The devil changes you. In the name of justice. There's no one left to finish this for me. Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage. No! Eight millimeter rated R. Directed by Joel Schumacher and starring Nicolas Cage and Joaquin Phoenix. So... Again, just a quick little uh, factoid about this movie. Released in 1999. The critics' consensus uh, is its sadistic violence is unappealing and is lacking in suspense and mystery. That is a very it's a very short consensus. 22% approval from critics, 52% approval from audiences. So like just one second. I want to be. I want to. People listen to this. I want them to get over the hump to get this into the sixties. Okay. Well, here we go. Ten minutes starts now. Okay. Uh, I think people. This movie is not trying to be anything more than it tries to be. It's a good mystery of uh, just this guy's journey into this underbelly. Right. And maybe it's ahead of its... I'll give it credit where credit's due. Maybe it's a little bit ahead of its time oh, okay. in its subject matter, but I it's. I would compare it to Seven. Seven came out in 95, I believe. Yes. This is like definitely writing like that kind of dark coattail. It seemed to have the same color palette. Color palette. It's uh, And Joel Schumacher, he's, he got... Be- like This, this is, is two he, years after Batman this, and Robin. This is the movie right after Batman and Robin. Look, I'm happy those movies... I know their movies are awful. I'm happy they exist. Right. Out of an ironic point of view, this... We love them. We all kind of quote those movies. This obviously is a big step up. But Joel Schumacher has done good work. I I would say, like, Phone Booth, Lost Boys... uh, Oh, I really like Phone Booth. Joel Schumacher is a good director in my eyes. That could be a play, Phone Booth. Um, And you got a good... That could. You got a... a Tempered performance by Nick Cage. I think Nick Cage is very good in this. You know, he tends... To be a little wild sometimes, even in that era of his career, like '98 was Face Off, and he was like a madman in that movie. I feel like he was very controlled in this movie. You got a young Joaquin. Well, I think he was controlled for the first two thirds. Oh yeah. Joaquin Phoenix, I thought was an interesting character. I totally, yeah, another great performance from him. I feel like he 
is a chameleon a lot of the times, and I was totally believing this character. And I'm going to say, there's a uh, I whoever saw this movie definitely said, like, I think this guy would make a great mobster. Because I think this this had a hand in getting uh, James Gandolfini. Yeah. Tony Soprano. This is right. right before, like, they must have filmed, like, 1999, 2000. Well, Sopranos premiered the same year. Yeah. So, uh, but, and James Gandolfini is kind of doing a Tony Soprano. Well, he's like a sleazy. He's a sleazy. He, he's sleazy pornographer guy who kind of has a very similar way of Violent talking Violent tendencies and stuff like that. He's a temper. Um, but he has a moment in this movie that really disturbs me when he tongues the gun that Nick Cage is holding at him. That really bothered me. Yeah, <laughs> that it's got a, that's ingrained in my brain. I wish I hadn't seen reading that. Reading about it, is, it's, like, it, it goes into dark subject matter, which... There's a movie that came out years ago, direct, uh, written by the guy who did Taxi Driver, Paul Schrader, mm-hmm. called Hardcore, and it's about George C. Scott trying to find his daughter, who, who he, who's in a porn movie, and it goes into the seedy underbelly. Oh, okay, that's And that's how I kind of feel about this movie. It just yeah. goes into... It's a very well-written mystery. Well, I'll give you this. It's I'm very engaged for the mystery, which is like the first two-thirds of this movie, and I knew, as much as I'm enjoying this, a lot of how I will ultimately feel about this movie is going to depend on what the reveal is. What is the answer to this mystery? And there can only be so many answers, but I was disappointed the, by, the, the mystery. By, by, the, by the answer to this mystery. I When the rich person, like that assistant of the rich the person, lawyer, yeah. the lawyer, when he shows up at the end and he, it's like... This thing where, oh, the people who hired him were the basically the people responsible. I, that's a twist I've also seen before. And I was I thought that was a little obvious. Even in when they were setting up that first scene when the rich woman is setting him on this mission and the lawyer is there. I'm like, this lawyer looks really sleazy. Is he involved in this? I hope not. Well, he only pops up in that little bit. Like, it's like, why does this character even need to be there? Mm-hmm. I'll get... I still don't think that warrants a 22%. No, I think 22 is way too low. They do say... There's two lines in this movie that I think are so good that kind of just, like, make... That elevates the script just a little bit above a mystery. Like, then the... It's the line the lawyer said, like, Nick Cage is like, why did he do this? Oh, because he can? Because he can. I really... In these days of, like, Epstein and all this other stuff, I think that, like... Oh, this movie, no, this movie, I guess, really is ahead of its time. Though. And the last line when he goes against, when, like, he's fighting the the machine. Yeah. And it, it turns out to be the, just like, he's like, what did you expect? A monster? Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that for the first time going like, dang. Like, I, I think I was expecting a monster. I remember seeing this when I was, like, ju- uh, senior. I, my dad was watching this. I joined him. I, I was probably, like, a junior, senior maybe mm-hmm. going to college, and that line just really stood out to me. Yeah, you know, I thought that it was kind of interesting they made this really scary guy for most of the movie be unmasked to be just a normal kind like of Like a mom's guy. boy type stuff. Yeah, yeah, you would never guess this guy is like this sadistic, um, like, pornography, like, S&M kind of guy. However, I do... It did come back to me again at the end. I did like the last scene when... He gets Nick Cage gets a letter from this girl, her her mother. Yeah. It's like you know I think we were the only people who ever truly cared about her, and I, I kind of liked. I wish maybe the focus was a little bit more about who this girl was, 
as opposed to just what happened to her. I do like diving into this underbelly of, like, the black market sort of world of yeah. porn and what sort of horrible things lurk there. I think that's interesting to pull back that curtain. Yeah. And I imagine something maybe Joel Schumacher has wanted to do for a long time. <laughs> However, I think that the the there was I, I was confused when Nick Cage is going on this revenge binge towards the very end when he is just going crazy and killing all these people who are responsible because I'm like, well what is his attachment to this girl besides just being hired to find out by this old woman like what happened to her. Yes, he did talk to her mom, but I was just kind of confused why he was so like compelled to sacrifice even his own family to get revenge for this girl. He was willing to leave his family to avenge this girl who he has no connection to. And that kind of threw me off. I, I thought the movie then went from a very intriguing mystery to maybe a kind of familiar revenge thriller. And I wish it didn't go in that territory. Okay, if I had to give this movie a score, and I, hope, I, th I think people, I would give it like a good 68. Like, and I know, and the only reason I was, I picked this movie... You know, I have to say, in the past, you've given low scores, but said it's a good low score. You said, <laughs> a, you said for some reason, a good 45, a good 68. Like, it's not good if it's low, okay? But it's a tomato, nonetheless. Like, it, Fine. It, a tomato is, is watchable, uh... Yeah. And I think this movie is watchable. As a, the oh, very much I so. understand why he goes on that rampage. Is And they do kind of point it out at the end when he's standing over his daughter's... Like, he has a daughter, and he, it just... Oh, I, sure. I, I think there's that connection. It could have been done better. Believe me, Catherine Keener is completely... Like, this is during the time of uh, being John Malkovich, and she's completely, like, wife well, character. Right, Don't smoke right. wife character. Yeah, she's just kind of annoyed with him, and then, and then she's basically out of the movie for... Um, pretty much almost half Like, the movie, movie kind of stalls whenever she has to call. Right. Like, I understand that. I, and the only reason I, like, when we decided to do this idea was I, uh, I, I was shocked at the, how low this movie was, so right. this worked, but also I think Joaquin Phoenix, I was getting into a Joaquin Phoenix type move, and I'm like, you know what? I know he was a child actor, but let's see where he was where he was a teenager. And I remember, I do remember the first time I saw it, how awful his death scene was. Oh, that was pretty And brutal. Peter Stormore is, like, perfect for this kind oh, of movie. Oh, I love that Peter Stormare is in this. He, like, his With heyday... With a crossbow. His, his heyday, Peter Stormare, is, like, the, the mid to late 90s playing these bizarre... Uh, violent, Russian, quirky, yeah, like, like, like <laughs> Eastern weird, European, uh, yeah, accented vaguely characters. ethnic characters. I get a kick out of that. I think he fit perfectly into this movie. Um, and then, uh, with Joaquin Phoenix's character, he definitely seemed like a character who was destined to die. I was like thinking when this character started to get involved in the plot more, I did think he's probably not going to make it. And but I kind of felt for, like he actually they they added enough. Like, character that I was hurt that yeah. he died. Now, this movie also being a mystery harkens to, like, noir, right? I mean, it's like he's... A, and I'm a big noir Nick guy. Nick Cage is a private investigator, and he is getting in too deep with the case that he's involved in. That's like a classic sort of noir structure, and... You know, again, there's a lot. All those movies, they really depend on the ending. The best endings make it like the best, some of the best movies of all time. You know, Chinatown, Maltese Falcon. But this, 
I so I I really wish they come up with something more clever. So for me, I would give this movie definitely higher than twenty two. I would give it a fifty nine. I'm gonna give it. You're not even gonna give it. A, it's one point away from a tomato. That's the point. That's the can point. Can it be a good fifty nine though? <laughs> can it be it's a good fifty nine? It's a so so fifty nine. Okay, I <laughs> give it the good fifty nine. The good fifty nine does not exist. But I would give it a 59 because, yes, it is as good as a movie with a disappointing ending is going to be. Everything leading up to that ending or that third act is intriguing. Really great. I'm on board. Performances, mood, tone, everything is great. It's just where it goes I was very disappointed by. And that's the challenge with the mystery. you got to have a good answer. And this one didn't have. I'm a happy I was able to raise it though. But right, you're, it's, it's one point away. Twenty two is like really cutting this movie short. Oh, and Roger Ebert agreed with me as well. He oh. gave it three out of four. Well, you know what? <laughs> I, it's always nice when the fat man's on your side. Okay, so we're gonna move on to our final movie of this little uh, experiment we're doing here. The movie that I like. That audiences and critics do not like. There's only one new comedy out on DVD. We're family now. That will make you feel better. Oh. About your own family. Oh. You're terrifying him. Meet the Fockers. Own it today on DVD. Fucker out. A little factoid about this movie before I start the, the countdown. Uh... 2004 release, directed by Jay Roach, who, isn't that the same guy as Austin Powers? He's done Austin Powers, he does, he's doing, uh... He's a comedic director. He does a lot of, he's doing that bombshell movie. Okay. Uh, he, he does a lot of political, like, Trumbo now. Yeah, he has a lot of, like, comedies under his belt. Um, Did the first Meet the Parents, I think? I believe so, too. Yeah. So, uh, bring back the cast of Meet the Parents, Ben Stiller, Rob Nero, uh, Gwyneth Peltro's mom... I don't... Glide Danner. Yes. Yeah. And, um... <laughs> Mom? <laughs> Mom. And then also adding to the cast for this sequel, Dustin Hoffman and, um... Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. I am just short of names today. So, I will start the countdown. Oh, and then, sorry, the scores. So, this movie has a 39% approval from critics, a 58% approval from audiences, and the consensus is... Talented cast is wasted as the movie is content with recycling jokes from its predecessor, Meet the Parents. So here we go, 10 minutes starting now. I would say that this movie improves on Meet the Parents. I feel like what's frustrating about Meet the Parents is that you're almost supposed to root against Greg. Like, everything is at his expense, but it's so unjustified. I feel like in this movie... It gets turned around that Robert De Niro's character, Jack, who you should be kind of against in the first movie, but the movie doesn't want you to be, this time around, he does get his comeuppance. Everyone does kind of agree, no, Jack, you're being the jerk this time. And uh, I think Dustin Hoffman and Barbara Streisand are really funny. Uh, I love seeing these two powerhouse actors, De Niro and Hoffman, like together in a movie. In a comedic movie, I feel like they have a, real, a lot of really funny interactions with each other. I just think, you know, this is not maybe, like, the funniest movie of all time, but I think that there was a, more to it than its predecessor, so I prefer this one over Meet the Parents, I would say. I'm not giving this a huge thumbs up, but I'm surprised that 
the critics dislike this so much. I think it's funny. I don't think the talent, the cast is a wasted talent. I disagree with that a lot. I disagree with. I agree with you that it, like uh, I think the addition of Dustin Hoffman and Barbara. I think they kind of steal the show. Yeah. Uh, I disagree with you that I think Meet the Parents is a like a classic. And yeah. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about sequels. Mm-hmm. A lot of our these episodes and uh, like a lot of the movies that we covered. Uh, kind of like their first movie were standalones, and they did so well that they... Right, this is like, definitely that case. And and did it need to get made? Did it need... It doesn't matter because it got made. Mm-hmm. You didn't think this movie went into... There are some things that were funny, and then it just... I would say about the second act, it gets so goofy, like cartoonishly well, goofy. When they introduce the... The... Um, the son? The possible son, who happens to look just like... Ben Stiller, yeah, that is kind of an insane plot line. But I give props to the casting for finding an yeah. actor who looks just like who is the Hispanic version of Ben Stiller. That was when amazing. they do like the picture overlap. I'm like, they did a good job. That was I was so impressed by that. Also, and, it was nice to see Larry David's uh, Shelley Berman. I, I had no idea. Like he was the judge. He's like, oh, oh that's he, right. He's yes, like, he's done so well for my, my for my sex life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was nice to see him. Bingo, again. bingo. Yeah, that yeah, bingo, guy. bingo. <laughs> I thought there was some really. Uh, I, I I get such a kick out of Dustin Hoffman in this movie too, because he is so committed to being this absolute train wreck of a character. Like the the best moment for me with his character is when he's like dancing on the dance floor and he backs up into the buffet table and knocks it over. Like this guy, this guy can't go five minutes without ruining something. I thought that was great. I think it was so easy uh, for writer, the writers of this movie to write comic scenes for them and yeah. they like the. I even think the voicemail is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Like, I I want chimichanga. Then you get the chimichanga. Make a chimichanga. Uh, uh, I, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't, oh. I don't obey my own. Uh, <laughs> yeah, see, this like, is... There's some... Dustin Hoffman is a comedic force in this movie. It's a quotable movie. Uh, has a lot of rewatchability factors. I also don't I think it before. recycles... I, like, I read I that. They come like, up with new jokes. They come up with new jokes. Because you have new characters. So, and it's like, oh, I don't think it... Reci- I mean, the nurse thing, I think, is... Like, yeah, that's kind of recycled. A that's little 2004, bit. though. I like, I, it's of the time, and we like blah blah blah. But I'll say this though, I think that it's funny that they made it more obvious how ridiculous the character Greg is going, like the lengths he's going to try to please the Jack character, because in the first movie, it's 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 hard for me to say. I feel like it's it's funnier because you kind of more sympathizing with Greg in this movie, where at the, at the last movie, you're kind of laughing at his expense. I felt like Meet the Parents was a little mean-spirited. It's just a poor guy who has bad luck, and it's so cringy. This time around, you know, there's, he's even, Greg is even trying to justify Jack's, like, rubber boob, <laughs> which I thought was such a funny set piece. It's, it's funny, but it's also, like, if, if Meet the Parents is so cynical, this goes into the complete opposite territory of, like, I like no, no, no one like this is so cartoony. Yeah, that it like I'm a. It's kind of like what happened to The Office. Like there's some there's some bed mm-hmm. of realism, and I can even I like the fact that like oh my dad's a former CIA and they're doing the lie detector and then it goes into he has a secret compartment in his RV. Yeah, that's right. And then, like once Steve Carell left, like we're ha- we're in cartoon land. Oh, and okay. We're like like in the office. Like Steve how. Like, how traumatized... I did, like, the... For all, like, the stuff with children, I did actually, like, the... 
the jokes with the kid. Like, I like the jokes with... Whole, like, I thought that was really funny. I like when the kid gets sprayed with toilet water because this kid... <laughs> actually, I, I found this kid to be kind of annoying, but I think the movie it was on purpose that this is kind of this annoying kid who's, like, he's kind of cute, but not really. And so when he gets sprayed with that toilet water from head to toe, I thought that was really funny. Like, that that was kind of satisfying. I, I, the, would, I thought the editing in this movie was... Like, I usually... You don't notice good editing, like, uh, but you notice, like, Bad it was choppy, or at least, like, oh, really? I didn't dunna, think so. dunna, like, you know, every time, like, someone says something awkward, it would cut to, like, you know, oh, there's like, Brian Danner, like, like, mm? There's tons, there's tons of reaction shots in this movie when... Tons of reaction shots, and it's kind of jarring. It was, it was particularly Particularly with, um, Robert Neer's character, because he's so judgy. Every single little thing that Greg's parents do, the Jack character has to kind of have this frowny face, like, hmm, don't like that. But again, like, you're kind of, I don't know, you're, you're not supposed to really root for Jack this time around, which I liked. Oh, uh, and I kind of like that he is forced to be in this house with these sex-crazed people. Uh, well, the dynamic of that is really, like, even I, from start to finish that Barbara Streisand helps them with their marriage, all you have to do is I this. think they gave all the that characters something. Well. They even gave, uh, the actress again, what's her name? Blythe Danner. Blythe Danner. They even gave her character something to do, how she is jealous of the intimacy that Greg's parents have, and her attempts to, like, try to woo Jack fail for most of the movie. I thought that they gave everyone kind of something to do. And you still had the cringe humor of the first movie, but just done in different ways. Like that speech, when he is on Truth Serum giving that speech, that is a hard scene to watch. But I remember in the theater laughing. And it was I rem- great. I remember even with... Uh, I like the... Fox the dinner movie. scene. The yeah. dinner scene was... Oh. It's definitely like the... Like, that's... Yeah, when he goes into the fondue. Oh, that was pretty when bad. You're laugh- when you're laughing... And, and I know with cringe. If you're liking the cringe. If it's funny, like a... Cr- like, mm-hmm. and there's and there's that in this movie. This movie, when you're laughing, you're laughing. I, was, I thought not, it was hilarious. You're not. When you're not, you're not. Well, to me, the, the biggest uh, misfire is when they brought back in the credits the hidden camera stuff. I thought that wasn't really funny at all. I don't really... But credit stuff, I try not to include in like the main part of the movie. Uh, yeah. That's like saying, oh, I'm deducting points because the bloopers weren't funny. Also, there, there was like... I'm, having not seen this movie in years... You know, you see the opening credits, and you're like, Tim Blake Nelson? Oh, yeah. He's in this movie? He was insane. And then I'm, like, waiting for him, and then he plays the dumb cop from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, he basically. He plays it's, it's insane. And he's funny, cop. but it also it's like, wow, we're, like, put your hands on the vehicle. <laughs> like, I like quoting that. That was that was a good scene. Look, he's got a rubber movie. <laughs> like, that, yeah, yeah, that's like going to be so great. Like, he, but I was like, where is he? When does he pop up? Oh, only and in then, one scene. Yeah. Listen, at the end of the day, this is not the one of the funniest movies I've ever seen, but if someone had to ask me, oh, I, I've never seen Meet the Fockers, I don't know why someone would ask me if they should see Meet the Fockers, but if they did, I would say yes, because uh, I, I think it's hilarious. I, I've watched it several times and enjoyed it ever since. I think the jokes stick, and the jokes, um, they're still funny. It's not it, it's not a movie that feels outdated by any means. Yeah, I wonder the people that gave this, like a, that gave this a negative score, they must really... Like, I can uh, see, that you can't like I, you, it is a continuation. Right. Like, you're, meet the it's not affecting. It, yeah, it doesn't affect meet the parents in any way. It doesn't change. I would uh, say it just that, goes a little cartoony for me. Right. But right. I still enjoyed it. I would say the critics probably are on board with you. I think critics like more grounded comedies, and this one gets a little more screwball. And I'm surprised audiences didn't like it as much, or at least not enough to give it the sixty percent fresh approval rating, because. 
I, I feel like a lot of people I've talked to all enjoy this movie. It's it's a pop culture movie, right? It's been referenced a bunch of times. It's been at least satirized. It's a movie that, like I said, you people have heard of this movie. Now, you so. don't like the third... I never saw the third one. Never saw life. it, and I also don't know anyone who has. Yeah, like, I th- that movie, like... They got little, lucky. I feel like they definitely got lucky with this movie. Could have either gone the, the casting, opposite. The, the casting. Like they the got casting really helped. The that, jokes. Mm-hmm. There, some of the jokes really worked. Um, oh, one last line that I really and people enjoyed. Might, like this movie did very well at the box office. Oh yeah, it made a lot of money. Oh, and another line that I really enjoy is um, this. This is the fruit of your loins. Oh, say that again. This is the fruit of your loins. <laughs> yeah. Yes, this is the fruit of your loins. <laughs> I don't know, little things like that really get to me. Alright, so my time is up. My score for this movie would be uh, a 70. I'd give this a 70 because it's funny and, you know, doesn't stand out as one of the best comedies, but I'm glad I watched it. A 59. No, no, no. When I finished this movie, I did go, like, I enjoyed it. It's. You know, it's a flawed movie, but uh, I did enjoy it. I'll, uh, 64. I think All I, right. I think I did settle on a 64. All right. That's the that's a fresh. Yeah. So uh, that's a win for me. <laughs> I think we're tied. Yeah, yeah. I think we each had one where we were able to sway the other, but then... We thought we were going to argue like Gene and Roger Ebert. Like, Gene, oh. you didn't get the movie, Gene. Yeah, yeah. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> yeah, one can only dream to recreate that dynamic. So, um, okay, guys. Well... Those are our four movies we're divided on. If you agree with us or disagree with us, let us know. And, hey, if you have any movie that you feel like you are on the outs, everyone loves and you hate it, or the other way around, let us know. Everyone has one, right? Everyone has like uh, It's not even a guilty pleasure. It's just like, I really enjoyed this movie. Right. It's not like, oh, this is, I like this ironically. Some people really love a movie that everyone craps on, or they really... I think more commonly, I think everyone has that movie that they dislike, that everyone else loves, and it's... <clears throat> what I refer to as the English patient syndrome. If you recall Seinfeld, <laughs> Elaine hated the English patient and everyone loved it to the point where she was ostracized from her friends <laughs> and her boyfriend broke up with her. But I totally agree. Because if you dislike something and everyone is like giving you a hard time, you double down. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know what? Like, F you. I, now I hate it even more because you're giving me such a hard time about not liking it. So, so I... People, I think, double down on whatever, like, yeah. hopefully we change minds. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. we change minds. And, uh... Maybe that should be the I hope contest. we do this again after, like, each... I, I really kind of like this. This will be a recurring theme where uh, we end our seasons with a little bonus episode. For you folks at home. Yes. Uh, okay, guys, well, thanks for tuning in. Happy to... New Year. Yes. Uh, happy holidays. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back next year. I hope, yeah, we should uh, record as soon as possible. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, yeah, I, I would love to get back into it. So join us again next year, guys, for more Divided Films.